Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We've got a really special episode for you today. Jules is going to be interviewing Robert Chow Romero about his book, The Brown Church, and I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, friends. Welcome to the OnScript podcast. My name is Jules Martinez-Olivieri. I am the new co-host on OnScript, coming to you from North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. And today I am speaking with my friend, brother, and uh, scholar, Dr. Robert Chao Romero. Robert is an associate professor um, in UCLA, Departments of Chicano and Chicano Studies and Central American Studies and Asian American Studies. He received his PhD from UCLA in Latin American History and his Juris Doctor from UC Berkeley. So he's also an attorney. Um, Robert uh, Chao Romero is the author of several books, including The Chinese in Mexico, 1882 through 1940, which received the Latino Studies Award from the Latin American Studies Association. And his newest book, which will be the subject of our conversation today, is The Brown Church. Five Centuries of Latino and Latina Social Justice, Theology, and Identity, published by InterVarsity Press. And the Brown Church received recently the InterVarsity Press Reader's Choice Award for Best Academic Title. Robert is also a minister and a faith-rooted uh, community organizer. Dr. Chao Romero, welcome to Unscript. It's a pleasure to be with you and Unscript, Jules. Always a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad um, that we get to talk in this forum. Um, I think we met a few years back um, at a Latino writers uh, gathering sponsored by InterVarsity Press. And at that moment, I remember that we were kind of a dreaming together projects like this, right? Yeah, that was like when we met a number of years ago, that was like... This Brown Church book was just like a seed. It was a semilla, and it's, it's been amazing to journey with you ever since, and then to, by God's grace, to see the book come out. Wow. Uh, so th- to begin with, uh, can you tell us a little bit if there's uh, about your life? Uh, if, is there a moment in your life that stands out as being, as being that key, a particularly formative uh, moment for you in your own life journey? Sure. So I never would have imagined that I would be on a podcast like this. Um, I, you know, did my undergrad in history with dreams of becoming a rich lawyer and making a lot of money and being rich and famous. And then Jesus got a hold of my life when I was in law school and just changed everything. And flowing from that, that life change transformation, I felt a calling from God to become a professor and then to use that platform to address issues of race and Christianity. And so that was definitely the pivotal moment back in the late 1990s for me. Wow. Um, so, so you approach the discipline of history. You are a professor of Chicano and Chicana studies. Um, how do you understand the discipline of history in light of your expertise? Yeah, I think because I'm a professor of Chicano and Chicano studies, I have a very unique take on history that it overlaps with the traditional discipline of history, but it's very unique. I like to think about like, um, you know, scholars say that the uh, Exodus experience of the Israelites is not recorded um, in the Egyptian annals, right? It's nowhere, nowhere to be found. And if it wasn't for our scripture, those texts, those stories wouldn't be recorded. And as a Chicano historian, my job is to tell those stories that are left out of the metaphorical Egyptian history textbooks, and specifically those stories related to the Mexican-American and larger Latino and Asian-American communities. That's good. That reminds me of the old proverb that history is written usually by the powerful uh, at the expense or marginalization of other voices, right? Absolutely. Absolutely true. (laughs) Um, 
Now, uh, at one point, your own journey in Chicano and Chicana studies converged with uh, Christian history. <laughs> uh, when did that start to happen? Yeah, so it's an interesting story. So after getting tenure at UCLA about nine years ago or so, I was remodeling my kitchen <laughs> and I was like doing the drywall and I had like all this drywall just covered from head to toe. And I was listening to a Lauren Hill album, her MTV album. And in one of the parts of the album, she says, I'm tired of leaving two thirds of myself outside of the door when I make music. And at that point, I said to myself, I'm tired of leaving two thirds of myself outside of my academic door. Right? And I had been doing ministry with activist students for a decade already. And, but, but my scholarship and my activism and my ministry were very separate. And that's so at that point I, I prayed and I just asked God for wisdom to how to bring those two together. And that led me to this current moment. Mm. Um, okay. So what provoked this project, the Brown church? Um, you said that that those are elements that led you to this moment. Um, You know, every book has a birth somewhere else, right? It, it, it emerges from life, but um, what led you to write this book? Yeah, so um, because of my basically like an adult conversion, like my, my greatest spiritual gift, or I should say, put it in a humble way, like my strongest spiritual gift is evangelism. And over the many years, I've met so many students that have lost their faith. Because they, let's say they come from a church background, but then they get to the university and they learn about the very true things about systemic injustice and racial injustice. But then they're told in the classroom, usually, that it's impossible to reconcile being a Christian, following Jesus, and racial justice. So I've met, I can tell you so many tragic stories of people falling away from faith. And so on, on I mean, on a personal level, Um, I wrote Brown Church so that um, the millions of, of Latino, Latino um, students out there in the universities, community colleges and grad school can have a, a text, a book where they can say, yes, it is possible. I can love Jesus. I can love my God-given Latino culture and care about justice all at the same time because I'm part of this 500 year legacy of the Brown Church. Mm -hmm. You know, I, as I read the Brown Church, um, I, I quickly realized how a significant sector of Christianity in the U.S. and the U.S.A. things that uh, interest, awareness, solidarity, or demands for justice at all levels of society, that somehow this is something new, that we are innovating, that uh, we are talking something that is separated from the testimony of the church, But I soon realized, as I, from the very first chapter, even the introduction, that that's not the case and that there's a history to be told. Uh, so when you talk about the Brown Church, you're entering that history, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, kind of as your, as your listeners know very well, you know, there's more than 2,000 verses of Scripture that talk about justice and God's heart for the poor and compassion for immigrants and so forth. So... That's nothing new from the biblical record. And our faith is grounded in the narrative of the Exodus, right? in the narrative of Jesus of Galilee, right? Who lived under Roman oppression um, and his people who were expecting God to deliver them, right? From, from injustice, from, from Caesar. But that being said, um, what most people don't realize is that there is actually a 500 year history of specifically Latino Christian social justice, a 500-year legacy that began in 1511. And we were just talking about um, the Caribbean, you know, off, offline. And in 1511, but roughly two decades after Columbus um, crashed into the, you know, what we call the Caribbean and, and began the Spanish imperial project, you, you know, you had a decimation of the indigenous peoples of those islands, Right. Um, and what most people don't realize is there were hundreds of thousands of diverse indigenous peoples in those islands. But by about 1511, as a, as a consequence of Spanish colonization and disease and slavery, most of those indigenous people died. But in 1511, and, and note the year, right? It's 
about six years before uh, Martin Luther right, and the Protestant Catholic divide, this priest by the name of Montesinos, this Dominican priest calls all the Spanish elites of the island of, of what is now the Dominican Republic. And he says, come to church. I have an important message to tell you. And in 1511, on the Sunday before Christmas, he preached these words. He said, listen to me very closely. The words I'm about to, to share with you will be the strangest you ever heard. And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And then he, he, then, and then he laid it on, right? <laughs> he said, God gave you the opportunity, Spaniards, to share about Christ in love with these native indigenous peoples, but instead you exploited it as an opportunity for selfish gain. And if you don't repent, God's going to send you to hell. <laughs> Hang up the phone. Like That was the first racial justice, Christian racial justice sermon in the history of the Americas, right? And so it, this whole, this whole um, tradition of racial justice began with the church began with the church. And that began what, what I call the 500-year history of the Brown Church. Yes, actually, early in your book, you, you say, it is my contention that these many Latino, Latina, Christian social justice pioneers form what may be called the Brown Church, a prophetic ecclesial community of Latinos, Latinas, that has contested racial and social injustice in Latin America and the United States for the past 500 years. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. This, it, it's like a forgotten history. And, and uh, people who have challenged, you know, Spanish colonialism, slavery, patriarchy, Jim Crow segregation, the exploitation of undocumented workers, there is this through line, uninterrupted through line in Latin America and in, among U.S. Latinos uh, for 500 years. And for those students who are losing their faith, don't know how to reconcile all of this, or reconcile their passion for justice with their love for Jesus, I tell them, you belong, you have a home, you belong in the Brown Church. Mm. Now, you, now that you mentioned the Brown Church again, uh, how, how should we understand uh, the term Brown Church and Brown theology? And, and of course, you know, in, in, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, we also have the Afro-Latinos and Afro-Caribbeans. So this is not strictly uh, uh, a colored designation. It's, it's more of a concept. Exactly. So um, thank you for that important clarification. So I'm using brown as a metaphor. Metaphor for a few different things. First, for the cultural diversity that is within our Latin American people. And that's European, that's Spanish, that's German, that's Armenian, that's African of, of, of diverse origins, that's Middle Eastern, that's Asian, Chinese, Korean, that's all these things and every mixture of that, right? So as a Latin American people, by God's design, beautiful design, we have all this diversity within us that incorporates white and black in all things, right? So brown is a metaphor, first of all, for all of that diversity. Secondly, and this is especially true in the U.S. context, brown is a metaphor for racial in-betweenness. Racial in-betweenness is in between black and white in the U.S. racial discourse, in politics, in church denominations, in seminaries, etc., right? As an example of this, when Biden first took office, he announced a new office of, like, church relations or something to that effect. And he announced with that um, that he would have a special um, African-American liaison to the black community, which is wonderful. But he had no Latino liaison. <laughs> and, I, and I remember like many of us kind of scratching our heads like, well, I'm so glad that there is a sort of a black church relations sort of liaison. But what about us? Right. And, and you know, um, we are oftentimes kind of left out of that conversation. And Brown is sort of that space that we've occupied within U.S. history for centuries now and from which we followed Jesus and been the church. Hmm. That, that is actually very helpful. Uh, you, you mentioned the word liminality, uh, right? Uh, tell us a little bit about how that informs actually the praxis, the, the, the mission of the Brown Church, uh, living in the in-betweenness. Um, sure. It's very much like Moses, right? So Moses was, right, he was born in Goshen. As, as, as Karen Gonzalez says, he was like the first 
unaccompanied minor, right? His parents, you know, caring for his safety, float him down the Nile, right? He's raised in Pharaoh's courts, right? He's raised in the luxuries of Egypt, right? Of privilege. But at a certain point, he's like, gosh, I can't just, I can't overlook the suffering of his people. He had a choice to make. He could be like, man, I've got it good in Egypt. I could just keep pretending that I'm an Egyptian, right? And just forget about most of my people. But he chose to you know, look upon the suffering of his people and, and, to, and, to, and to reject that privilege in favor of following God and bringing deliverance to his people. As Latinas and Latinos, we, we have that same dilemma in the U.S. Because, you know, Jules, right? It's always our, it's, it's a constant dilemma for us as Latinas and Latinos, right? We're white enough where if we get enough education, <laughs> get enough money, we could be like, I'm going to live in the big house on the hill and I'm going to just like be like Ted Cruz and I'm just going to like forget my Latino culture and be like, oh yeah, those my yeah, yeah, the, those minorities, they just have to work harder, right? Um, or we could say, yes, by God's grace, I've received education and I've gotten, you know, economic privilege, but I'm not going to just turn my backs on most Latinos and Latinos, right? Who don't have that structural, same structural privilege, right? And I think that, that that's the way, like, that's, that's the dilemma and the blessing that many of us have, right, as Latinos and Latinos. And from that space, there is privileges where we can have access to certain types of, you know, education and religious structures and political structures that we can use for good, right? Um, and there's also enough suffering and marginality that we can identify with the suffering of, of other uh, minoritized communities. And so we're just kind of in this very unique space, right in the middle. Yeah, thank you for that. That's actually very helpful also for our, our listeners, uh, because um, it is often the case that we see Latino churches, for example, and uh, we don't realize that there is a whole parallel history that is going on centuries old that where, where you can find people in fidelity, in solidarity, working their faith out in the imitation of Jesus for all kinds of human causes without um, making uh, easy uh, separations between faith. Now what I'm doing is about faith. Now what I'm doing is about uh, changing the system or society or human conditions, because from the faith stems this praxis. Um, and early in your book, you know, around chapter three, you give us a helpful survey of some of the key figures that are part of the background of the back of the Brown church. You mentioned Garcilaso de la Vega. You mentioned Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how those people uh, contributed and influence the birth of the Brown Church. Sure. So Garcilaso de la Vega, el Inca, was he was one of the first mestizos in the Americas, right? So his father was a, was a Spanish conquistador. His mother was was of an elite indigenous background in 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 Peru, and he lived in between these worlds, right? Like he would go to visit his mother's indigenous family, you know, much of the time and hear their stories, their experiences, their suffering, their past glories. But at the same time, you know, as the son of an elite conquistador, he received a lot of that privilege as well. And um, he, as, as, as a person of mixed cultural heritage, the point came where he said, you know what, I have to speak in defense of my mother's people. <laughs> and, and he wrote... Um, a book, books that were, that, that talked about kind of the glorious past of the indigenous peoples of, of Peru, spoke against the abuses of the Spanish elite, right, which were even his own, you know, relatives, right, the way that, that the indigenous peoples were killed and suffered violence and placed under oppressive structures of governance, right. And his work, Garcilaso de la Vega, and his nickname is El Inca, Garcilaso de la Vega el Inca, he wrote a book that inspired like different rebellions in Peru even. Like you've heard of like Tupac Amaru and different people like that, right? Tupac Shakur, right? The rapper who's channeling Tupac Amaru. Well, Tupac Amaru was inspired by the writings of Garcilaso de la Vega el Inca, 
right? Challenging, you know, the conquest, also in explicitly Christian terms. Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz was, she was, she was Mexican. She lived around kind of the, the 18th century. She came also from kind of a more privileged background, although she, she never knew, never knew her father. And she was drawn to learning at a very young age, right? This was at a time when there was no role basically for women in, in, the, in the academy, in the Christian academy, right? But she just had this passion for learning. And when she was a kid, she taught herself Latin. She taught herself, you know, all these different languages. She used to like, um, as an incentive, she would say, if I don't learn a certain amount of Latin, I'm going to cut my hair off. <laughs> and, and she wouldn't eat cheese because someone told her cheese makes you, makes you dumb. Right? And she just became this self-trained, like, masterful poet and one of the first um, multidisciplinary theologians where she combined math and science and literature with theology. And she became such a threat that the, that, that the religious authorities that be tried to, like, just um, cut her down. And she wrote these fiery, um, um, basically long essays in response to defend herself. But sadly, eventually, she gave in the pressure was can you imagine the time of the inquisition it's just too much right and she she basically scholars say she died a martyr and, and 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 she wrote she was forced to write a false confession and she wrote it in her blood and it said i the worst of all sort of juana Inés de la cruz right so and she's claimed to be like the first feminist actually yes <laughs> first feminist in the americas yes i mean we could almost say that she's one of the first theologians in the Americas of any language. Amen. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, so this background propels you to, or prepares the scene uh, for you to enter into the U.S.-Mexico uh, war in which you basically locate and you say that here in this, out of, out of the events of this war, we can find the, the the first formal visibility of the brown church emerges out of these historical sociopolitical event tell us a little bit about that sure so there was a father but a padre father antonio martinez of taos mexico in fact i just visited his his former home like a couple of weeks ago on vacation and a week a week before that i got an email from one of his descendants in taos mexico I'm sorry, not Taos, New Mexico, who had found the Brown Church and was, and I talk about, you know, Father Martinez in it. And that person, it was so cool. He put the Brown Church on top of a stack of, of the father's old books from, from the 1800s and took a picture and sent it to me. But anyway, it's a fun story. But Father Martinez, he lived in, of course, half of what is now the United States was Mexico right? <laughs> until like 1848. Um, and there was what Abraham Lincoln called an unjust war. Um, um, between the U.S. and Mexico, Ulysses S. Grant said that the U.S. Civil War was God's punishment of the United States for the unjust U.S.-Mexico War. But anyways, that's a larger story. The U.S. took over, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, California, Oregon, Colorado, all these places right after that war. And in addition to there being a military conquest, there was a spiritual conquest, a spiritual conquest as well. And Father Martinez was... He came from a, a Mexican family that was rather kind of elite, to be honest, right? But he, but he, he was, a, he was a, a priest before the takeover, right? And he lived there in, in New Mexico as part of the kind of the, the leading families there. And um, but the, what happened after the war was that uh, the, Catholic, the U.S. Catholic Church sent over this, this French guy <laughs> named Bishop Lamy from Maryland, of all places, to reconstitute the Catholic Church in New Mexico and in the Southwest. And what Lamy did was, was it was atrocious. You know, um, there had been a several hundred year already, a history of several hundred years, right, of native Christian, you know, practices amongst the Hispanic people there, right? And art and all these unique kind of ways in which the churches, the churches were adorned with art from the local families and all these things. Lamy took in a, in a violent way stripped all the churches of every aspect of Hispanic cultural heritage. All the vestments, all the garments, all the everything, right? And replaced them with European, um, just as if, as if it was France or something. That was so horrible, right? Um, also, what Lamy did to, 
support the efforts of, of the reconstruction, I would say the, the conquest of, of, the, of the Mexican Catholic Church, he wiped out all the leadership, all the Mexican leadership, except for the people that would be loyal to him. And he imposed exorbitant tithes upon the people. And there was even like a, a lawsuit by the state but by the government officials of, of New Mexico against the church saying, wait a minute, this is, this can't, this is not right, right? Um, and so there were, he was imposing all these expensive fees for people to get married, to be buried, to all these kinds of things. And um, Mar- Bishop, or rather, um, Padre Martinez, he responded and said, this is not right. And he wrote articles in the local newspaper right of New Mexico, the big newspapers, and went had this big, violent public sort of back and forth with Lamy, saying, this is not right. What you're doing is not right. Well, eventually the bishop, the French bishop, excommunicated Padre Martinez. Um, But Padre Martinez continued as an underground pastor, beloved of the people, right? He wasn't perfect, but he, 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 in my opinion, he began the Brown Church in the U.S., right? Fighting back and saying, uh-uh. You can't just wipe away. You can't erase our cultural heritage as follower, as Latino, Latina followers of Jesus. That's not going to work. And he paid the price. But I think that that began, in my view, the history of the Brown Church in the United States that has been continued ever since in many different ways. And you do make a persuasive argument for that being the case. Um, you, when we fast forward to the 20th century, you're, you're bringing the threats together and then... Uh, you focus, for example, uh, on a few key figures again, and you mentioned Cesar Chavez, for example. You mentioned the, the influence of what you term abuelita theology. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, Cesar Chavez is another good example of what I mean by the brown church. In the activist circles that I swim in, oftentimes the faith of Cesar Chavez is erased as well, sadly, right? Just like with Dr. King, how oftentimes people try to take out the reverend of Dr. King. Same thing with Chavez. But, but Chavez once said, as an example, the only justice is Christ. <laughs> so Chavez said, the only justice is Christ. And, and his organizing methods fused popular Mexican Catholicism with Catholic social teachings with community organizing methods that he learned, right? Working in, 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 vote, in working for voting rights and other kinds of, of rights for Mex- the Mexican American community. He brought those three, those three things together in a powerful way that really changed history. To give an example of how that looked, there was a famous march from um, Delano to the steps of Sacramento. And it's, it's called, a, you know, it's like, it's noted in, in um, ethnic history, but that Chavez, I'm sorry, that Chavez, <laughs> but that, that march was, a, he called it a pilgrimage, and it took place during Lent, <laughs> and they arrived at the steps of the capital of Sacramento and celebrated mass using an altar that was made out of a farm worker's pickup truck. <laughs> That's another example, right? His fasting was were spiritual fasts, and Chavez said, I'm not doing these, these spiritual fasts to try to force anyone to do anything. I'm trying to draw closer to God and trying to make sure that the movement is purified of injustice. And I could go on with many examples, right? But Chavez is another example of, of the Brown Church. Over time, you know, others, and, and most, of the, most of the figures, of course, are unnamed and, you know, are waiting to, for their stories to be told. But... In the time of Jim Crow, you know, we were mistreated as well, right? In Protestant churches, Catholic churches, denominations, right? And so you, you had these grassroots movements of people, um, men and women, actually, you know, starting their, their own sort of offshoots of like the Pentecostal movement, right? And establishing Latin American seminaries and associations of churches because we simply were not welcomed with full equality in the mainstream denominations. And so there are many examples of people starting those organizations, also self-theologizing, right? Because, I mean, it's bad enough now in 21st century to go to seminary and find anything about Latinos, but can you imagine in the 1940s and 50s and 60s? And so as you, I mean, you're an expert in this, Jules, I'm not a theologian, but like there has been an, an indigenous Latino, Latina theological movement in the United States 
formally for at least, again, the last maybe 40 years, but informally for <laughs> a couple hundred years, right? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned self-theologizing, and I, it just reminds me that in missiology, uh, people talk about developing goals of churches that can self-multiply, that can self-sustain, um, that can basically self-govern. But then when churches in other parts became centers of self-theologizing, then that becomes a problem. <laughs> that becomes a problem for the dominant, uh, somewhat hegemonic claim that uh, the theology of missionaries, uh, particularly those usually from an evangelical background, um, was superior. And whereas you can self-govern, uh, self-multiply, and self-sustain, uh, leave me the theologizing, leave me, let me tell you what to think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, oh my gosh. So, so your tracing of these, uh, historical threads and movements is so important. You will eventually move to give us a glimpse of contemporary U S Latino theology, but in your way over there, you also pick up a strong influences from Latin American theology and Misión Integral. Can you tell us about that? I love Misión Integral. In fact, I have the privilege of giving a talk about Brown Church in Peru this weekend. And I'm going to talk with some of the very founders of, of Misión Integral, but I'm so, so honored. But, okay, in the 1950s, um, you had... Latino pastors and ministry leaders who were trained in the United States, and they were trained very much in an individualistic gospel, right? Um, about our personal relationship with Christ and grace. And those are wonderful things, of course, right? Central things. But they were not equipped with a social, biblical social ethic. So they went back to Latin America and they went onto college campuses, for example, like Rene Padilla, Samuel Escobar. Pedro Arana and others, and they said, believe the good news. Jesus loves you and wants to have a personal relationship with you. But the students in return would say things like, we're living in revolutionary times. Um, these, the dictatorships just killed my, my, my dad last week. Nobody on my block has food to eat. Um, the military is taking over our town. Why is that good news to me? What does your gospel have to speak into what I'm experiencing now. And Arana and others, Padilla and others, they, they stepped back very in humility and said, let me think about that. Those students are right, right? What is our biblical social ethic? What does the gospel have to say? And it's very much like in the United States today, right? 1.2 million young people are leaving the church, church every year asking these very similar questions. And they frame this theology of Misión Integral and of course, you could explain this much better than me, but they said the gospel is like a plane with two wings. One wing is the verbal proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord and Savior and King. He came to make us and the whole world new and he died on the cross and rose again, right, to make this possible. But the second wing is embodying that good news through loving our neighbor, right, in every way imaginable, right, um, and and expressing compassion towards the poor and immigrants and, and making this place more just. Stated another way, the gospel transforms us as individuals. Jesus wants to transform every aspect of who we are, our physicality, our emotions, our spiritual relationships, everything, right? Our family relationships. But then the, the kingdom of God is so, also salt and light right? and transforms every aspect of our broken and fallen world, right? That, that is messed up because of sin. And basically like Latin America then and the US now, most churches and ministry organizations emphasize one wing or the other, but not both. And the plane is crashing and 1.2 million young people are jumping out of the plane, right? And they're like, I'm not stupid. This thing's going down, right? And so I, I love how Misión Integral from 40 years ago offers us a time-tested method of deconstructing and reconstructing our faith in, in, these current, in this current moment. And in a way that allows us 
to come out with a stronger faith in Jesus, with deeper commitment to the local and global church, right, and to God's mission among us. Right? I, so I just love that example of Mission Integral, you know, for its many applications today. I love in, um, in your book, you say, you basically quote René Padilla in 1969, and some people can read that without knowing the date, and they're like, oh, he's just now talking about social and the integration of, uh, of social issues with the gospel. Is That's just a fad. But in 1969, as you quote, René Padilla says, the proclamation of the gospel, the kerigma, and the demonstration of the gospel that gives itself in service, the aconia, form an indissoluble whole. One without the other is an incomplete, mutilated gospel, and consequently, contrary to the will of God. From this perspective, it is foolish to ask about the relative importance of evangelism and social responsibility. This will be equivalent to asking about the relative importance of the right wing and the left wing of a plane. <laughs> Does that Amen. for that? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you trace the... Uh, some of the main lines of emergence of um, Mission Integral. And nowadays, people talk about holistic mission uh, as if this is just common parlance. Nowadays, it might be common parlance, but it was René Padilla and Escobar back in the day proposing this at the Lausanne Covenant, for example, the World Council of Evangelism, <laughs> and talking about these uh, matters in moments of lots of social turmoil um, in Latin America. Um, and once you do that, you also move then to back to the U.S. to try to trace what you see are some of the recent Latino and Latina theologies in the United States. And, and I love how you not only describe uh, some of the theological contributions, but you are concerned of how theology is grounded in specific practices. Uh, can, can you, can you uh, elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. So one of the big joys of this project was to just dig into it, even if even, you know, relatively superficially, the recent sort of, um, you know, theologizing of, of, the, of Latinas and Latinos. And as Latinas and Latinos in the United States, we can't help but tie our reflections of, of God to tie that with our daily experiences, right? And one example which I, that I love is, is the the, the uh, framework of Galilee, the metaphor of Galilee that theologians like uh, Virgilio Elizondo, um, Orlando Costas talk about. And, and they say, for example, why does the Bible talk so much about Galilee? <laughs> Jesus, when, you know, when God came incarnate in human flesh, he chose to be raised in Galilee, choose all of his le earliest leaders from Galilee, die and, and and rise again and say meet me in Galilee what's why Galilee right and I love how Latino Latino theologians say that Galilee was the hood of Jesus's day right Galilee was the marginalized community the liminal community of his his day that was being oppressed under the weight of, of Roman imperialism um, the Galileans were being squeezed you know by the elites of their own people many of them had lost their lands right they were being forced to Hellenize, right? They were just like, you know, crying out like, Lord, help us, right? And they, Galilee, Galileans also spoke with an accent. They were, they were bilingual, trilingual, right? And Latino theologians say, Jesus is one of us. <laughs> Galilee was the hood of Miami. Galilee was the hood of Los Angeles. But for that matter, Galilee was the poorest white rural region in Arkansas that is looked down upon and dismissed by most people, right? And that tells us something, <laughs> that God has this unique concern for the suffering of all those people who live in the Galilees of his own time or today. And that makes our theology very, very concrete, right? So then we're called then to the Galilees to preach the verbal good news, actually to learn from them, first of all, like, <laughs> because Jesus has already been there, right? We don't need, they don't actually don't need us. But anyways, we're called to partner with Galilee, right? Um, and 
to just to embody, just like Jesus embodied care and concern for Galilee in his day, in, in so many ways, we're called to do the same. Yes, thank you, thank you for that. Um, in, in your book, you, you, you mentioned that there are certain tenets of the Brown Church, and you kind of lay out in almost poetic form uh, the, the angst, the longings, the, almost in a, like a prayer of the Brown Church. Um, what, what, what are some of those tenets? What, what are some of those items that, that you might want to highlight as, as part of the longings of this part of the body of Christ? Sure. I think it really, it really like those tenets are really like an expression of those two wings of the plane. So to, 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 to set that up, first of all, one of the tenets is really simple. God calls me Miha, Miho. That God just, in other words, like for those of listeners who might not be familiar with those words, it's like, that's what we call our son or daughter. Like, call my son Miho, call my daughter Miha. That's the first thing, like, God calls us that too. <laughs> you, Jules, and me, right? Secondly, that God also cares about the cultural heritage that he's given to us, right? Revelation chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 talks about, you know, the glory and honor of the nations, the cultural treasure and wealth of the different ethnic groups of the world, right? And so, like, when we see the picture in Revelation 7 of people of every tribe, language, nation, tongue, etc., we don't come empty-handed. <laughs> like, we come in our full ethnic fullness, our ethnic fullness, right, with our, with, our, with our distinct cultural treasure and wealth, which we bring to Jesus and the body of Christ, right? And that matters to God, because a lot of times, as Latinas and Latinos, because we're in the middle, we're forced to just squeeze into whiteness, right? We're supposed to be, we're forced to kind of assimilate into another tribe, but never be our own tribe. But just like Moses' journey with the Israelites, you know, following the, the Shekinah glory of God, right, for 40 years, we've followed, as Latinas and Latinos in all of our diversity, we've traveled with Jesus, right, in the tent, right, following the pillar of cloud and, and fire, right? And that matters to God, too. So I think it, it's sort of an appreciation that God sees us and values us as his unique children, right? We don't have to just become like the eldest child or the second oldest child, or whatever, right? Uh, another deep longing is with respect to um, uh, biblical gender equality, right? That um, the patriarchy that sadly sometimes defines the Latino community, God's not okay with that, right? In, in a world of, of, of fallenness and sin, when men and women come together, Women often get the short end of the stick, right? And that God's not okay with that, right? Another thing is, is but the Brown Church, you know, I know it's a bad word to say right now, but we're very orthodox. <laughs> <laughs> In a good sense, right? Like, you know, we love Jesus. We don't water down who Jesus was and the need for God's grace and forgiveness, right? And we also don't, we don't water down God's word, right? You know, it's not just like theoretical exercise. Like we need God's word, right, to survive, right? I had to spend time this morning just on my knees before God after reading scripture because life is hard. And I think that's also like a key tenet of the Brown Church is like, you know, we're not going to get into, I mean, and right now, my point is not to get into any kind of like little doctrinal debates, but we believe the Bible is God's word. <laughs> it's alive. It's a treasure. It heals us. It strengthens us. It gives us hope. And that's a, that's a core tenet as well. But also, and then I'll just say one more thing, that the goal of the Brown Church is not the Brown Church. <laughs> the goal of the Brown Church is the beloved community of all. Praise Jesus, right? It's Revelation 7, it's Revelation 21, right? But the Brown Church is, is perhaps a different entry point. But we welcome all. Amen. Amen. I mean, um, there, is a, there is a sense in which... Uh, entering to the journey in this book will take us through centers of faithfulness and yet painful stories and stages. And 
um, as Latinos uh, who come from lands that have been filled with suffering, uh, we usually do not um, we do not try to escape the painful aspects of our lives. We confront them. Uh, sometimes we put them to the side in order to revisit later. Um, now, in public discourse in the United States, uh, what we find is that if you are going to tell the story of a family, uh, just say the good things. <laughs> just, uh, just highlight how good we are. <laughs> and uh, that kind of almost family culture is extrapolated in certain, certain sectors of Christianity. Uh, in our case, within the Protestant uh, tradition, evangelical or even more conservative, fundamentalist, and in between, that if we take a look at the horrors of history, that somehow we will not be able to find hope, that somehow uh, we will be pessimistic of, on everything, that somehow we will ignore uh, the redemptive aspects that we can also find in history. But in the Brown Church, you thread a very realistic path between suffering, hopelessness, hope, redemption, tenacity, resilience, which is a story also of God's grace. The Latino church exists then because of the grace of God, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. I, it, it's like, yeah, I don't, I, of course, as you're, as you're saying, like, I don't see any, any like, uh, necessary tension between the two, right? It's like, you don't have an Israelite people without the exodus and without the suffering. <laughs> um, as like N.T. Wright talks about, it's like um, communion was instituted as part of Passover, <laughs> a remembering of suffering and deliverance. And I think that, yeah, it, it's all just, I, I try to paint a human story, a human story there, realistic and, and bring out the faults of, of people, the strengths and the weaknesses of and that gives me hope. Um, I think of it like as, like I've been doing therapy for 20 years to try to recover from my messed up family. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, but like what happens in a broken family when one member of the family tries to, 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 to lovingly, directly say, this was not right. This sibling hurt me in this way or this parent hurt me in this way. If the family just tries to shove it under the rug, it just produces decades of continued dysfunction and no resolution. And that's the same thing with shying away from the pain of, say, U.S. history or Latin American history. We can't afford to do that. Because if there's not accountability, we can't move on, right? If there's not repentance, right, um, we're just going to stay a dysfunctional family. And so um, I hope that we can in an objective way, just like the Bible does, like bring out that pain, that suffering, have accountability and repentance, know that we're all imperfect, but, but not do it, but not just like try to shove it under the rug. Because again, as we know if, from the analogy of, of a family, it doesn't work. Yeah, it, it really doesn't. Uh, and we do also always need help to see what we cannot see. Um, and uh, we do so for our personal health with medical doctors, with counselors, with psychologists. But we also do it when we are try trying to trace the history of Christian thought and Christian testimony. We appeal to um, history, social sciences, different disciplines that will allow us to rescue um, the voices that have been marginalized or ignored. Um, and, and I think that you, you do an excellent job here in centering those voices in a coherent narrative and gives us enough to feel that uh, we need more, <laughs> that, uh, that, that, that we need to know more, we need to, to, to pay more attention, that we need to be in more solidarity. Um, um, how is this work in this book uh, expanded, helped you, uh, let's say, grow and mature in your own walk with the Lord, your own uh, church family? Uh, what, are, what are some of the testimonies? <laughs> I want to hear testimonies. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> amen, amen. So, I mean, my, one of my favorite testimonies 
is, you know, when the book came out about a year ago, I got this, this email from a Latina a graduate theology student who was studying in the Midwest. And she said this, she said, I stayed up all night reading the book. I couldn't stop crying. I, I finally found a home. But the funny thing is, is that fo that home has always been there. She just didn't, just didn't know about it. That type of response, oh my gosh, that for me, that, that's what it's all about is to see people, because we have a crisis of identity right now where so many young people are like, well, you know, if, if, if in order to be a Christian, I have to sort of follow MAGA, well, I'm not going to do it. And then I must not be able to be a Christian, right? And, and so hearing those stories where people are able to, again, reconcile that identity and their preciousness in Christ, those, those are the most amazing stories. Another testimony, which is wonderful, is to see how um, the book has opened up a space of conversation within um, ethnic studies, within Chicano studies, Latino studies, right, in a place that very rarely has that conversation. And I'm going to be very clear because I'm going out for a full professor right now as we speak. <laughs> like, I respect the boundaries of church and state very much. And in the classroom, in my formal academic duties, like there's one way that I do things, right, to, to respect those, that separation. But in, of course, in my free time, I can do whatever I want, right? <laughs> we live in America. <laughs> so, so I want to be clear about that. But that being said, within that, my, that academic space, there is this wonderful conversation that is beginning through the book. And so right now I'm finishing up um, with some colleagues an essay collection about the role of Christianity and Chicano Chicano studies, right? It's going to come out probably like next spring. And we're just, and, and we got essays from some of like the leading scholars throughout the field uh, that, where they share, some of them share their faith journeys for the very first time, like leaders and like leaders in the field, right? And I just, it's so wonderful just to have that conversation. And, you know, no one, people don't have to agree, but at least I'm just so happy that let's have the conversation within the discipline. And, and, and you know, again, like I said, we don't have to all agree, but at least we can have the conversation. Well, that, that sounds like a fascinating project. And I think there is, there is, there is a kind of awakening in different disciplines. Um, something similar is happening in sociology of religion, for example. Uh, and uh, the the recentering of how religious traditions and in our case christianity has actually been informing the praxis and scholarship and the interest and of so many communities whether it are popular academic at all levels of society um it is it is it is a story that has much space to to grow on and to be told Uh, we need to listen to those stories. And of course, the, the, the secular project in one sense had this uh, romantic notion that somehow given the enlightenment values, we just do not have to appeal to religiosity and people to understand human reality. But as anthropologists of religion, sociologists of religions, uh, uh, your own scholarship as a Chicano, Chicana studies leader, uh, bringing to bear how religious tradition informs so much of what's going on on the ground in terms of social praxis, social movements, civil rights. Um, I, I think I'm loving this stage of scholarship that is emerging. <laughs> that's great to hear that, that, you know, like within these different fields that that's a conversation is happening. Yeah. It's, it's so artificial to, to try to separate the two. You really have to go out of your way to do that. To do that. <laughs> Yeah, so that that's fantastic to have that those kind of conversations at AAR and places like that. Now, as part of your book, um, you uh, develop what's called the Brown Church Institute, and you can find it on Facebook, the Brown Church Institute. Go to their page and like them. Um, tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> that's so exciting. So, as By God's grace, the Brown Church book has gotten out there and the framework has resonated with many people. I thought, what could be a next step? And one idea is to start an institute that can promote these types of conversations and research and trainings and, you know, on an academic level for churches and so forth. And, but one exciting development is, 
in the next several months will be, um, well, we've already started it, but it's not official yet, so I won't say it in public. But the Brown Church Institute is going to get launched as part of a, a major evangelical seminary um, in the United States. Um, so, so I'll leave even on a cliffhanger there, but it's actually sort of officially started, but I, I don't want to like yeah. announce I'll, it until it's so like about official. To ask you, come on, announce it right here, right here. <laughs> I'll tell you I'll offline. be patient, I'll be patient. <laughs> Yeah. And, and along with along with that, though, like what I realized after about a couple of years of reflection is I don't want to start a movement <laughs> like, you know, who am I to try to represent like the all the diversity of Latinas and Latinos and like so many um, Christian racial justice movements have just imploded. Right? It's so complicated. So I just thought, no, I'm a professor. <laughs> I'm going to continue to be a professor. I'm going to start an institute. <laughs> good, good. I, I really like that. So, so please, if you're listening, you can go to the Brown Church Institute, uh, like it on Facebook, and uh, you will start seeing them on your feed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, whenever you find uh, a fascinating, passionate project and you finish that, the project is not actually done with you. <laughs> you finish a manuscript, <laughs> but the manuscript is not done with you. And um, there are always uh, other projects. You, know, you mentioned uh, this collection of essays from scholars in the field of Chicano and Chicana studies. Uh, anything else that, that we might, uh, you know, might want to be paying attention to in the near future? Yeah, so there's a few exciting projects like that are kind of coming to culmination. Um, so I'll just mention the small ones quickly. So I'm putting together with um, a couple of colleagues a collection of the writings of Las Casas. It's pretty cool, <laughs> right? Different snippets from his different writings translated from Spanish into like an NI, no, New Living Translation type of an English, type of an English with like Bartolomé de Las Casas, right? And it's for, it's with the, um, what is it called? World Impact like the urban ministry. And it's going to be like a, it's going to be part of like cohorts of like all these urban pastors and stuff. But of course the book will be more broadly available working with um, my good friend and pastor, pastor Marcos Canales on that. So that's super cool. Another project is um, putting together an essay collection that'll come out probably in the next couple of months. It's exciting. It's an ecumenical project on immigration. And we got scholars from evangelical institutions like Fuller, but also from like Georgetown and Notre Dame and some, some pretty heavy duty like Catholic brothers and sisters. Um, and so like that'll, that'll be in the next couple of months. And then, but the big one is like, I'm writing a book this fall with Jeff Leo, who is my good buddy. He's a, he's a theologian trained at Fuller and it's, it's with, it's with Baker and it's about, uh, CRT and Christianity. Oh, love it. That's the big one. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm looking forward to have some, you know, coffees or dinners with you in which we can, you know, bounce. Uh, I, I would love to ask you many questions <laughs> on that front. <laughs> no, likewise, Jules. And, you know, thank you for, I know you've been in this, in this, uh, not this game, but this, 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 uh, movement of the Brown Church and Brown Theology for so many years, long before I ever even knew it was a thing. So thank you. Thank you for all of your amazing contributions to our understandings of Christology and pneumatology and so many other things. No, thank, I, I appreciate that comment, but I am here as a learner and uh, I love when we can uh, look at each other and have brothers and sisters from, from whom we can learn and grow and also sit at their feet and say what the Lord is is doing with them, how their scholarship is growing, maturing, contributing to different fields. Uh, and all of them are anchored in a church community, in a church tradition with Christians committed to the praxis of Jesus. And um, we are, you know, small projects in process. And I, I love it. I love it that we are in process and growing together. So friends, um, as, as you have seen, we have had an amazing conversation with Dr. Robert Chao Romero. He is an associate professor uh, in UCLA departments of Chicano and Chicana Studies and Central American Studies and Asian American Studies. Um, and he's the author of The Brown Church, Five Centuries 
of Latino, Latina social justice, theology, and identity. Robert, uh, any last thoughts? No, just thank you. Thank you, Jules, and uh, sisters and brothers on this podcast. And um, maybe just keep doing this together and um, find a way forward in Jesus. All right. Well, we will see you soon um, at OnScript. Peace, and we're out. Thank you. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate. 